Turn in your Bibles this evening to Joshua chapter number 1. Joshua chapter number 1. I appreciate that good singing. I'm glad he loves us. Amen. I am rarely lovable, despite what you may think. Amen. But I am glad he loves me. (laughs) This whole thing of me loving him and him loving me, it didn't start with me. He loved me before I loved him. I'm not saying I didn't have a choice in that. I did have a choice in that. I could have not loved him. I could have pushed him away. I could have turned him away. But I'm just saying this thing didn't start with me earning his love because there's nothing I could do to earn his love. It certainly has never been about me loving him the way he deserves to be loved because I never have. But it's about him and his eternal love for me, for you. And if we could ever really just dial in on what the love of God means in our life, how it would transform us to see that a thrice holy, omnipotent, eternal, omniscient God would love us. Why would he do that? I got a message. I'll preach it here in a moment. But why would he do that? I I can't explain why he would. It doesn't look like a good bargain for him. Uh, And the only thing I can figure is this, is that it's a fit manifestation of his grace, of his mercy and of his goodness. The only thing God gets out of the whole bargain is an opportunity to show just how wonderful He truly is. And you know, there could have been no other way He could have shown that. If He had loved somebody that deserved love, we would have known that He's loving, but we wouldn't have known how gracious He is. If He had had mercy on somebody that didn't need mercy, then all we would have seen is how great a God He is, but we wouldn't have learned how merciful He truly is. You see, it took the brokenness of humanity for there to be a fit vessel uh, and, and object of the expression of God's grace and God's love. Uh, had mankind not been so broken, we could have never learned how wonderful he truly is. My soul, the love of God. Joshua chapter number 1 tonight. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 10. Now, we preached out of this chapter on Wednesday night, but we're going to look and take our text from the end of this chapter. Joshua chapter number 1. Verse number 10, the Bible says, Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the host and command the people, saying, Prepare you victuals, for within three days you shall pass over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God giveth you to possess it. And to the Reubenites and to the Gadites and to the half the tribe of Manasseh spake Joshua, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you saying, The Lord your God hath given you rest and hath given you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side, Jordan. But ye shall pass before your brethren armed, all the mighty men of valor, and help them, until the Lord hath given your brethren rest as he hath given you. They also have possessed the land which the Lord your God giveth them. Then ye shall return unto the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side Jordan toward the sun rising. And they answered Joshua, saying, All that thou commandest us, we will do. Whithersoever thou sendest us, we will go. According as we hearken unto Moses in all things, so will we hearken unto thee. Only the Lord thy God be with thee, as he was with Moses." Whosoever he be that doth rebel against thy commandment and will not hearken unto thy words in all that thou commandest him, he shall be put to death. Only be strong and of a good courage. Let's stop there and pray. Lord, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. Thank you for the way that you've met with us today. Lord, we're not worthy. 
Lord, I can't understand why, and I love our church and our people, but I can't understand why you'd show up the way that you've done in our hearts, our lives today. We're certainly not deserving of it. Lord, we're not worthy of it. Lord, we're sure thankful for it. And God, we just pray that tonight you would work in our hearts and lives again. Lord, I pray that there would, in every heart, that there'd be an open door. And God, that the Spirit of God would have liberty to speak to us, to speak honestly with us. Lord, that we would be humble enough to hear and to heed what is said to us tonight. And Lord, that we would see in Christ the only answer and the only hope and in the Word of God the only source and resource of the strength that we need. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us the way you love us. Lord, bless our time together. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, the book of Joshua in the Old Testament is a book of conquest. The children of Israel are conquering the land of Canaan, which God has promised them. I think very often uh, throughout, uh, you know, uh, Christianity, there has been a lot of misunderstanding about the significance that the land of Canaan uh, plays in the life of the believer today. Very often we will hear Canaan equated with the idea of heaven. And while certainly I would say this, that if you want to tell me how wonderful heaven is and talk about Canaan being a promised land and heaven being a promised land, I can say amen with you. I'm looking forward to being with the Lord in heaven, looking forward to uh, that place. But when we study our Bible, I think if we rightly divide the word of truth, I think we're left uh, coming away with a study of the place of Canaan and the principles of Canaan and the people of Canaan, not viewing it necessarily as a picture of heaven, but rather viewing it as a picture of the life that God intends for His people. The promised land, or the land of Canaan, was life as God envisioned it for those people of His. He desired for them to take possession of this land, to enjoy this land, to develop this land, and to rest safely within this land. It reminds me of the life that God has envisioned for you and I, for saved by His grace, the life that He has in mind for you and us. You know, God has a, a an ambition for your life. I don't know if you realize that. We live in a society today where very very few people have an ambition for their life. They're just sort of floating along the river of time and being letting the current take them wherever uh, it listeth and allowing themselves to be bumped from obstacle to obstacle. But God has a design and a desire for your life. God has something He desires for you to be. He has a manner of living that He has envisioned and planned for you and for your life. If we were to, I think, use a very common terminology that maybe is a little more readily recognizable, especially those of us that have grown up in church, we could say that Canaan is a picture of the victorious Christian life, of the Christian life as God envisions it for His people to live. And the book of Joshua is occupied with this topic of God's people appropriating what God has promised, taking possession of what God has provided for them, and being able to live in that land successfully. You know, I'm not under any delusion that we're going to live a life that is free of failure in every way. I'm under no delusion we're going to live a life where we're not going to make mistakes, where we're not going to mess up. I'm aware of that. But you know, God wants you to succeed as a Christian. I can't promise you he's got a a six or seven figure salary in mind for you. I can't promise you uh, that he has a big old mansion with a three car garage. I can't promise you that he has a nicer car than what you're driving. But I can promise you that God intends on you as a Christian being successful. He intends on you growing in the Lord. 
He intends on you allowing Him to have victory in your life over sin and over the things that would be a stumbling block against you in your walk for Christ. And His goal and His vision for you and His design for you is that as the years continue to march on, you're becoming more like Christ and you're doing more for the Lord and you're growing in your walk with Him. His desire is that you succeed as a Christian. And when we read this chapter in the Word of God, in this book at large, really, the book of Joshua, we are reminded both of the principle and of the process of letting God have victory in our life. How can we allow God to help us grow as a believer, as a Christian, to give us victory over the things that would be stumbling blocks for us? Well, I noticed something in our text. I want you to notice it with me. Look at verse number 15. The Bible says this, Then ye shall return unto the land of your possession, and enjoy it. And enjoy it. Can I say to you tonight, God intends on you enjoying being a Christian. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't have hard times, nor does it mean that the goal and focus of Bible Christianity is that you be entertained or that you enjoy yourself. But God didn't save you for you to be miserable. That got a chilly reception. We can't even amen being happy anymore. What's wrong with us? God intends on you enjoying your walk with Him. God intends on you succeeding in your walk with Him. I'm not saying that won't likewise be met with your share of calamities and sorrows and tragedies. I'm not blind to that reality of human existence. And I understand that even as believers, you go through the Word of God and you'll find that they that live godly in Christ Jesus suffer persecution and that suffering is an apportioned lot of the believer. That don't mean that we need to live our life suffering through our life. God intends on us enjoying what He's provided for us. God intends on us enjoying our Christianity, enjoying our walk with Christ, enjoying the work of God in our life. If I could encourage you this evening, I would encourage you with this thought, then you shall enjoy your possession. What will it take for our Christianity to be successful and for us to enjoy it? Well, I want you to notice our text this evening. I want you to notice a few principles within it. Now, to give you a little bit of the context, this is being addressed, of course, to the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh. And Joshua is addressing them as they are standing on the eastern side of the river Jordan. They have taken this much of the land, but now the rest of Israel's possession and the rest of Israel's inheritance lies on the other side of the river Jordan. They're getting ready to cross the river Jordan. And he turns and looks at these tribes and these families, and he reminds them that they have a solemn oath and duty to cross the river Jordan and to assist in the conquering of the land that is not necessarily theirs, but will be their fellow countrymen. And he tells them once the job is done, once the enemy is vanquished, once the work is accomplished, God intends on you coming back and enjoying the portion of land that is yours. So he gives them this instruction. He says in verse 14, Your wives and your little ones and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side Jordan. But ye shall pass before your brethren armed all the mighty men of valor and help them until the Lord have given your brethren rest as he hath given you. And they also have possessed the land which the Lord your God giveth them. 
You know, it's interesting when you read that at the way that God ordered this and structured this. Because God essentially invests these families in the same plight and purpose as the rest of the tribe of Israel. He reminds them of this truth. If you want to succeed, they're going to have to succeed. And he tells them that they are to leave the most vulnerable of their company back at home on the east side of the River Jordan. Now, at that time in Israel's history, the east side of the River Jordan was a pretty safe place to be. They would have been surrounded by neighbors. They would have been surrounded by a support system. They would have presumably been safe on that side of the River Jordan. And he's telling them to leave them behind so that that does not expose them to danger. But then doesn't it not bring to our mind what the risk would be and what the cost would be if they did not win those battles? You say, preacher, what do you get now? Well, I want to notice three things before I notice three things. And the first three things I want to notice is what's at risk for them in our text. say, preacher, does it really matter that I apply myself to my Christian walk? Yes, it does. Now, you may say, well, preacher, that's a silly question. It'd only be asked as a rhetorical one. Oh, I know it'd only be asked as a rhetorical one, only because we ain't got nerve enough to speak what's on our mind. Because the fact of the matter is, a great many times, you can tell by people's behavior, by their attitude, by their level of devotion and commitment, that they're really not serious about this thing of walking with Christ. And so I want to preach to those tonight, and let the Holy Ghost of God smite hearts as to who it may be, that you need to invest yourself in the work of God and in the cause of Christ and in the things of God and not settle for this stagnant and tepid form of cultural Christianity that has become so pervasive in society around us. I'm saying this, man, it matters whether you get serious about God. It does. It matters. You say, preacher, what's at risk? Well, I'd notice three things. Number one, I want you to notice the safety of their family was at risk. You see, if they went and marched to battle and won those battles, their family would be fine. But if in the day of battle they failed, uh, in the day of battle they faltered, in the day of battle they forfeit, then their family was no safer on the east side of Jordan than it would have been on the battlefield its very self. Preacher, why are we fighting these wars? I'm talking about spiritually speaking as far as as the hard work of of, of instilling in ourselves faithfulness and, and discipline and devotion, getting serious about serving the Lord, making Him a priority in our life, making Him preeminent in our life. You say, Preacher, why is that so important? One of the reasons it's important is your family needs you to do that. Because if if not, guess what? Hey, listen, your home will become a battlefield. And the battle will find its way to your doorstep. Now, I'm not promising you that if you're serious about your walk with the Lord, that your home will never have problems. Nor am I saying that if you're serious in the Lord, that that is a guarantee that your children will uh, just de facto be serious for the Lord. I have seen families where they were devoted and consecrated and serious and serving the Lord. But listen, children make their own choices. People grow up. The pesky thing about children is one day they grow up and become adults. Or at least they get voting age, whatever that means. And uh, I'm not I'm not suggesting that if you have brokenness in your family, that that is necessarily a de facto product of any kind of failure on your part. I'll let the Holy Ghost apply whatever He wants to apply in your heart and in your life. But I will just say this, particularly to our younger families, your family is at stake. That's how important it is. This thing of half in, half out, your family will pay the price for it. 
You'll raise your kids up believing that Christ is not worthy of the fullness of your attention and of your time. Uh, they'll grow up believing that it's okay just to have a cultural association with Christianity. They'll grow up believing it's all right just to be half in and half out. And guess what? They won't even be half in. They won't even be half in. And then your grandkids will never even have a toe in. Uh, listen, your family's at risk in this thing. It matters. The future of your family is, is at hand. That You say, well, preacher, why are you being so dramatic? Because it is that serious. It is that serious. They had to understand when they stood upon that battlefield that if they failed, their family would pay the price. That the carnage and brutality that they saw in front of them on the battlefield would find its way to their doorstep if they did not stand in the day of battle. Say, preacher, why are you so hard on folks about standing? Because if you don't, the battle will find its place at your doorstep. It'll come for your children. It'll come for your grandchildren. It'll come for your marriage. It'll come for your spouse. Hey, listen, the, the, the safety of their family was at stake. Then I want you to notice verse 14. The end of it, he says this, But ye shall pass before your brethren armed, all the mighty men of valor, and help them. Now, why did they have to help them? Well, because they needed help. Now, here's the truth. People need help in the Lord. I, you may have got it all figured out. I wish you'd show me how you did that. That'd be nice. But I need help in the Lord. And if you were to be honest, you'd probably have to admit that you need help in the Lord as well. And here's the here's the thing that is at risk for them. It's not just the safety of their family, but it's the success of their fellow countrymen. If the nation was going to succeed, then they had to recognize that they needed help one to another to be able to vanquish the foe set before them. You say, well, preacher, what does that have to do with me? Well, it reminds me that I likewise am invested in a company of people that are fellow citizens of a country and of a place, that we are headed to that place, and that if I want my fellow countrymen to succeed, I'm going to have to be willing to help them and do my part in seeing them be successful in the taking of their land as well. Well, preacher, what are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about the church. Talking about the New Testament church. I understand the distinction between Israel and the church. I don't believe Israel's ever been the church or the church Israel. And I don't believe ever that they are going to just simply be conflated or confused. But I do recognize that there is some typology here. And I, I recognize that just as they were in this thing together, hey, guess what? You're part of a local New Testament church. You're in this thing together. And the success of your fellow believers within the body of Christ bears directly upon your success as a Christian as well. It should matter to us whether the church does well. It should matter to us whether other people within the body of Christ, whether they do well. I understand, just as with children, we can't make decisions for them. They're going to have to make their own choices in life as to whether they're going to be successful in their Christianity. But it should it should burden us deeply, it should bother us deeply, and it should interest us deeply whether or not they succeed in that endeavor. I don't know if you realize this, man, but but if you're like a lot of people, you ain't got nobody closer in your life than the people sitting in this room with you. And you're knit together in a way that you're not with anyone else in the world. And so the success of your fellow country, that ought to matter to you. The, the success of the people in the body of Christ that know the Lord. Hey, there may come a day where all we got is each other. Do you realize that? There may come a day where all we've got is each other. You, you better you better get in on this thing. There may come a day when you ain't got nobody except the people that have sat around in a pew with you. I would say this. Hey, listen, the success of our fellow countrymen. But then notice verse 15. He says this, Until the Lord have given your brethren rest as he hath given you, and they also have possessed the land which the Lord your God giveth them. Then ye shall return unto the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side, Jordan, toward the sunrise. 
Why was it so imperative that they stand in the day of battle and that they be fully invested in this cause and purpose that God had called them to? Well, because not only their family, but also their possession was contingent upon the success of their brethren. If they couldn't defeat the foe across the river pretty soon, the foe would be across the river and on their side. We could say it this way, the security of their future depended upon their willingness to get serious about this thing and to go and to fight the battles that lay before them. See, here's the fact of the matter. If we won't get serious, it won't be long. You say, well, preacher, my family might pay. Preacher, my church might pay. Sooner or later, you'll pay for not getting serious about serving the Lord. Sooner or later, you'll pay that cost. Uh, if you want your uh, walk with Christ to be, and we keep using that term successful, I don't know, maybe that's a secular word or too secular of a word, but I think whatever you label it, I think we all understand, hey, some people are getting it done and some aren't. Some people are growing in the Lord and some aren't. Some people are advancing in their walk with Christ and some aren't. I don't say that about anyone in this particular room. Again, I'll let the Spirit of God make His application, do His office work. But I will just say we understand it as a reality. We all know Christians that struggle in their Christianity. That, you know, they would say they're doing their best, but it's just a constant groundhog's day of failure and of setbacks over and over and over again. You say, preacher, does it have to be like that? Praise God, it doesn't have to be like that. You can grow in the Lord. You can succeed in your walk with Christ. I'm not saying you'll ever be perfect or ever have attained on this side of glory. But hey, you can follow after. You can press toward. You can grow. You can be somewhere you aren't today. You can be somewhere you weren't five years ago. You can grow in the Lord if you'll commit yourself to that purpose. So we've looked at what's at risk. I want to ask this question. And, you know, preachers, they ask a question that then leads to other questions that lead to other questions. And so I don't want you thinking we're almost done. You'll get excited. Amen. But I want to ask this second question tonight. What is required? So what will it take then? If I'm going to get serious about my walk with Christ, what does that look like? I'm I'm a person. I'm, I'm a little bit of a visual learner, but I'm also a little bit dumb. And so I like for people to just tell me. Sometimes I need that. I just need, I just, I, I need to be told what is, what in the word. I mean, I, I, sometimes I don't need all the imagery. I don't need all the flowery language. I just, I'm, I'm dumb and I need somebody just to tell me what they're saying. Well, you say, well, preacher, what is it that it will take for this to happen in our lives? Well, I want you to notice verses 16, 17, and 18. And I want us to notice three things it will take in our Christianity. If we're going to grow in the Lord, if we're going to be successful in our Christianity, and if God is going to gain victory in our life. Look at verse 16. The Bible says they answered Joshua. And let me, this isn't part of my message, but let me just pause and notice it does take your participation. God ain't just going to do this to you. Uh, there's a lot of folks just waiting for God to do something to them. And I listen, I recognize that I had no part in, in the activity of God saving me apart from me being willing for God to save me. I know that I didn't do anything to earn that or, or anything to secure that. Uh, but even in the matter of salvation, I had to be willing for God to save me. And certainly in your walk with the Lord, you've got to be willing for God to work in your life. So they answered. They answered Joshua. And this is what they said. They said, all that thou commandest us, we will do. And whithersoever thou sendest us, we will go. I'm not a military person. I've never served in any sort of military, but I, I've known a lot of people that have. My father was in the Army, and, you know, I've, I've known, I've pastored a lot of uh, people throughout the years that were in the military. And one of the things they will all tell you that the Army will teach you is not to sign up for things that you don't know about yet. 
Thank you, Brother Stephen. But you've got to be careful about volunteering for things before you've got the full details. That's exactly right. You know what I find astounding here? The children of Israel, they answer Joshua and they write him a blank check. And they say, whatever you tell us to do, Joshua, we'll do it. Wherever you tell us to go, Joshua, we'll go. I will say this, while certainly it would be dangerous in this dispensation, in our context, to yield that sort of authority to any human being or human agent in our life, I will say that Joshua in this text, he is God's representative to the children of Israel. And so when they're saying this to Joshua, they're really making this commitment unto the Lord. And they deal with some of the details of that in verse 17. But they're not just uh, submitting themselves to every whim that Joshua has. They make this statement confident that Joshua is not going to command them to do anything that God has not instructed him to do. And so here's what they're saying. They're saying, whatever the Lord wants of us, that's what we'll do. Wherever he wants us to go, that's where we'll go. And boy, here, don't we have one of the secrets to successful Christianity? You know what it requires? It requires an instant obedience. Slow obedience is disobedience. Slow obedience is disobedience. I remember, boy, listen, there's no more anxiety-inducing experience in life than having your dad say, I want you to go to that toolbox and get me this tool. And you better hurry. (laughs) And then the utter gripping terror of staring at a toolbox full of tools that you can't name or enumerate and just praying to God and hoping that you're picking up the right one. And then bringing it back to him and finding out it was the wrong one. And then him saying, no, go get the right one. Saying, and you better hurry. You better hurry. Uh, growing up in our house, you could, you could get a whipping for doing the right thing slow, too slow. Amen. You didn't even have to do the wrong thing. If you just didn't do the right thing quick enough, that would be enough. Boy, I'll tell you this though, it instilled a principle in, in me that even in dealing with God, Doing the right thing too slow is disobedience. For example, see footnote, book of Jonah. He wound up in Nineveh. Eventually, he had to go on, on, on the whale cruise ship. Amen. <laughs> the SS vomit to find his way there. Hey, one of the things that will make you successful in your Christianity is if you learn to obey God immediately. Right. If you don't have to, as the book Psalm says, be like the, like the mule, like the donkey that has to be led about with bit and bridle. Too many of us are only willing to do what God says. I mean, this is how we are. Lord, I, Lord, I'll do anything you want. I promise. God, you just tell me. And the moment you're done wrestling me to the ground and hog tying me, I promise I'll obey God. But you know, the children of Israel, part of the only reason they met with any measure of success is they learned how to obey God immediately. It involved two things. Number one, they learned this in the performance of His Word. They said, all that Thou commandest us, we will do. Not the things we enjoy doing. Not the things that we see logic and sense in. But they said, if you command us, that'll be enough. Reminds me of Simon Peter in the New Testament. Nevertheless, Lord, at Thy Word, we will let down the net. Reminds me of what... Mary, the mother of the Lord, said in John chapter number 2, Whatsoever he saith unto thee, do it. Do it. We don't like that. We'd like to talk about it a little longer. But the Bible says, whatsoever he saith, do it. Immediately. 
Listen, the, the place of the Word of God should not have to be debated in our life. We should, if you've been saved more than about eight seconds, you ought to have already learned that your life is far better if you'll just yield to the Lord and go ahead and obey Him. One of the first lessons we learn in our life is what an expensive and painful road it is to take that slow road to Nineveh. And I see in this passage that an instant obedience in the performance of His Word. But then I like His second phrase. He says, and whithersoever thou sendest us, we will go. I would say this, instant obedience in the performance of His Word, but number two, in the path of His will. It says, wherever our place is, God, you tell us, and that's exactly where we'll be. Serving God will sometimes take you to places you don't want to go. And you have to commit, resolve in your heart and in your mind that it's more important to be in the will of God than it is to be in the place of your own choosing. They said, we won't order the battle. Joshua, you order the battle. And wherever you tell us to go, wherever you say the fight is, wherever you say the battle is, wherever you say that we are most effective, that's where we'll be, wherever you want us to be at. There's a great many people are willing to serve God uh, passionately, deliberately, as long as they can do it on their own terms and in their own location and in their own manner. They view themselves like a free agent athletic star that's being signed to God's team and is being brought in just to work their magic because they want to benefit God and His program. But what could be more disconsonant with Bible Christianity than that notion? You can do all the right things, but if you do them in the wrong place, it's still disobedience. So let's stop and review this. You can do the right thing, but do it too slow. It's still disobedience. You can do the right thing, but do it in the wrong place. It's still disobedience. You can be in the right place, but doing the wrong thing, and it is still disobedience. Sounds like this to me. We need to just go ahead and just cut all of the debate and negotiation out of this matter of being obedient to the Lord. Just say like they did on this day, whatever you command us, Lord, that's what we'll do. Wherever you send us, Lord, that's where we'll go. If the battle is the Lord's, why won't you let him order it? Man, we're all ready to share the memes and, 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 and to quote the verses and, and we're all ready with the platitudes and we're all just anxious to say how the battle is the Lord's. It's not ours. God will give me victory. God will do all those things. And all the while it is us with our hands on the steering wheel of the matter. If it's the Lord's battle, let him order it. If it's his, then let him control it. I would say, number one, it will require an instant obedience. But then look at verse 17. The Bible says this, According as we hearken unto Moses in all things, so will we hearken unto thee. Only the Lord thy God be with thee as he was with Moses. I would say not only does it require an instant obedience, but number two, it requires a consistent allegiance. What are they saying in verse 17? They've already said that whatever he commanded them, they will do. So what does it mean in verse 17 when he says, As we hearken unto Moses in all things, so will we hearken unto thee. Well, I'd remind you, per the preaching on Wednesday night, that the beginning of this chapter is the beginning of the book of Joshua, and it opens by describing how that Moses, the servant of the Lord, is dead. And so in many ways, what Joshua is telling them is the first marching order that they have been given since the death of Moses. And in this passage, what they're saying is this. The same way we followed Moses, Joshua, we'll follow you. We'll follow you. In other words, they're saying our loyalties ain't changed. Our allegiances have not changed. 
We were always, and they even emphasize this fact at the end of verse 17 when they say, only the Lord thy God be with thee as he was with Moses. What they're saying is it was never Moses that it was about. It was about the Lord. And if the Lord's with you the way the Lord was with Moses, then Joshua, we ain't going to have any problems. We're just going to keep marching forward. I would say in our life, one of the things that plagues us and I think is a source of failure in our life is inconsistent loyalties. I mean, listen, we can go into a preaching service and hear somebody get up and preach real well and get stirred up a little bit and we're ready to give everything to Christ. But then before we have hit the driveway, we have allowed a thousand other things to rob the glory and preeminence from Him and to become the priority of our life. A great many of us would say that we have an undying loyalty to Christ. And yet when you look at our lives, you see it's evidence that we've allowed any number of things to become more important than Him. And then sometimes we will commit ourselves in sincerity, I mean in honesty, towards being loyal to the Lord and making Him the Lord of our life and making Him the most important thing in our life. But then pretty soon when oftentimes the the pressure and the circumstances that have provoked that decision in our life are alleviated, we allow ourselves to slack in that commitment, consecration, and devotion. In other words, hey, listen, some of us, I mean, we can be awesome Christians occasionally. We can be serious every now and then. But the thing that we're lacking is faithfulness and consistency in carrying that through. I noticed two things here. I noticed, number one, the evidence of their allegiance. They said this, according as we hearkened unto Moses and all things, so will we hearken unto thee. They said, Joshua will listen to you. You willing to listen to God? I know you'll listen to him when he's saying things you want to hear. I mean, all of us will. But when he's saying things you don't want to hear, are you still willing to listen to him? When he's saying things that are just going to absolutely tear your entire world out of frame, are you still willing to listen to him? When he's saying things that fly in the face of some of the, the commitments and perspectives that you hold most dear in your life, are you still willing to listen to him? If you're not, it could be that you're marching under a banner other than his. could be that you've allowed something to... Uh, rest his loyalty away. I, I see the evidence of their allegiance. It's real simple. Uh, Whatever is most important in your life, you will give right of way to. That you will make accommodations for. You will allow for. We, me and my wife were watching the show about different addictions and things of that sort. And one of the things that you'll find is when people have addictions in their life, their entire world has to mold around that addiction. And whatever can exist in their world can only exist in as much as it can be crammed in around this addiction. And their entire worldview and their entire logic will become so warped that it does not even make sense to themselves, but that doesn't even matter to them anymore because it allows them to nurse and to protect and to insulate this addiction in their life. Now, it's easy to look at the drug addict and point out that behavior and the alcoholic point out that behavior. and The person that has any other number of very transparent, surface, nefarious addictions. But the fact is, listen, the thing that makes those things addictive is sin. The thing that makes those things addictive is sin. And your sin is as addictive as those sins. And you'll do the same thing for your sin that the addict will do for their sin. You'll, you'll try to build a little fence around it and put, put a little protection around it and, and completely change your entire worldview if necessary to allow for that. Why is that? Well, it's rest your allegiance, your loyalty away. It's real simple. Is there any place off limits concerning the Lord and you? 
Is there any area of your life, any corner of your heart that you've said, maybe you've not even said it or articulated it, but you know it in your heart, that if God came for that, you'd say no? Sorry, Lord, that's too important. I see the evidence of their allegiance. It would be uh, that they would allow God to deal with them. They would hearken unto Moses uh, or unto Joshua and all things. But then they said this. I want you to notice the extent of their allegiance. They said, only the Lord thy God be with thee as he was with Moses. Now, here's what they said. They said, if God will be with you like he was with Moses, then we'll listen to you like we listen to Moses. But Joshua, if you ever tell us, do anything contrary to what God has told us, our mind is already made up. We are free of our vows and our duty and our obligation. Now, I will tell you, there's not many passages in Scripture uh, that make Israel look better than this one. <laughs> and often they did not live up to these commitments and to these principles throughout their long and checkered history as uh, testified of in the Word of God. But it does serve as an example of this. You say, preacher, where should my allegiances lie? With the Lord. With the Lord. Now, listen, your allegiances shouldn't lie with me. Your allegiances should lie with the Lord. The most important thing in your life should be that He's pleased with you. That upsets everybody in your life. That's okay. I'm not saying you should revel in them being disturbed or upset, but, but as long as you're pleasing Him, that's all that should matter. A lot of times people fail in their Christianity because they get more concerned with what other people will think of them than they are with what God will think of them. And it becomes about men's opinions of them. And what will they think if I this? What will they think if I that? I wonder if you've ever let yourself be kept from the altar because you was afraid of what someone would think of you. I've been guilty of that. You may not have. Probably haven't. You're more spiritual than me. But I, I've been guilty of that. Of saying, now, God's dealing with me about something, but I'm not going to go because the preacher didn't preach on what God's dealing with me about. People might think I'm going down because of that thing that he preached about. That's why none of us preach on gluttony. Amen? We'd never get an altar call. Have you ever looked at the Lord and said, no, Lord, I'm sorry. What will they think of me? I will tell you this. If your pride has got you to a place where God can't speak to you, you better nail that that pride to the cross of Calvary. I, I see a consistent allegiance. But then a final thing. I'm done tonight. Look at verse 18. This is interesting. Uh, you know it's a good meeting when it ends with veiled death threats. He says this, verse 18. Whosoever he be that doth rebel against thy commandment, will not hearken unto thy words in all that thou commandest him, he shall be put to death. Only be strong and of a good courage. Joshua says to him, if you're going to do this, you're all ramped up to do it now. You're revved up to do it now. But sooner or later, there'll be somebody in your company that breaks rank. And you better decide now what you're going to do with them. You better make your mind up now what your protocol is when that time comes. And here's what he advises them. He says, hey, listen, when that day happens, when that day comes, you take the rebel out and you execute them. Because if you don't, it puts the whole company at risk. Here's what I see it's going to take. It's going to take an instant obedience and a consistent allegiance. But finally, it's going to take a constant diligence. Here, here's, here's where I lose most people. Constant preacher? Yeah, constant. All the time preacher? That's what constant means. <laughs> constant diligence. Joshua tells them, or they, maybe possibly, depending on your perspective of this verse, maybe it's them voicing it to Joshua, but the sentiment is the same nonetheless. Sooner or later, there's going to be something that comes up to derail them in this resolve. 
And they have to be constantly watching for the things that might short-circuit the commitment that they've made on this day. You know, a great many of us, we just get, we get distracted. We're easily distracted in society today. We get distracted and we let our guard down. I don't know about you, man. Most things that get me, I know better. Well, that's all right. Me and Toby will have church tonight. Most things that get me, I know better. Like the devil doesn't have to break out his super secret weapon blueprints on me. Most of the time, it's stuff that I know better. I mean, it's stuff I've known better for a long time. He don't have to do spiritual jujitsu on me. I normally trip over my own two feet. And it's usually not due to any great measure of cunning on his part, but rather a lack of, of diligence on my part. Uh, you're going to have to make your mind up about two things if you're going to be successful in your Christianity. One, you can be committed and still enjoy Christianity. Those two things are not mutually exclusive of each other. It's not you either have loose Christianity or you, you, and it's enjoyable or you have right Christianity and it's miserable. Somebody has showed you that in church, but that's not really the dynamic of it. You can you can walk in holiness and still enjoy life. And one of the devil's chief propaganda tools is to convince believers that living for God is an unhappy, miserable existence. Well, if it is, you ain't doing it right. I'm not trying to be ugly and I'm not trying to be a smart aleck. I'm just telling you, if if you're miserable in your Christianity, uh, that is a malfunction. That is not normal. That's not. I know there's a lot of people that do it that way, and so it may look like it's normal, but it's not. You should enjoy living for Christ. And you're going to have to resolve yourself and commit yourself and settle yourself in this reality that the only way to be successful is to be consistent. You don't have to be spectacular. You just have to be consistent. I sometimes worry that, that, and I'm for it, man. I'm for like, I like biographies and stuff. I like to read about people's lives and, and their history and things like that. And, and uh, I've read a lot of in, in my life, you know, uh, biographies of great men of God and, and great missionaries and things like that. And I, you know, I think that's good. Anything that aspires us to, to, uh, you know, a greater spiritual ambition to live for the Lord is probably a good thing. But you know, one of the, I think, misrepresentations of a lot of, of those, particularly if, if they're not an autobiography and, and sometimes they're be a little tinge of hero worship and things like that is it kind of gives you the impression that these people man they're just of a better caliber than you and i and that's not the case if anybody has ever done anything for christ it's been done through faithful consistency and obedient application of the word of god in their life and you in your life the, the oftentimes maybe you're not this way maybe you are consistently unimpressive but most of us the problem is that we're just inconsistent. We'll get excited, we'll get serious, but then we'll allow things to draw us away. There had to be a constant diligence against two things. Number one, against the sources of failure. Why was it so important that if somebody rebelled against the commandment of the Lord that they put them to death? Because that was the most humane, merciful way to deal with that problem at that time in human history and at that time in the nation of Israel. Because anything less would bring the judgment of God. Ask the children of Israel after the battle of Ai. Just a few chapters on in the Word of God, a man by the name of Achan would disobey the commandment of the Lord and would claim some of the spoils from Jericho unto himself. 
and it would bring about the deaths of the children of Israel uh, at the battle of Ai. See, it would have been real humane to take uh, you know, uh, Achan's part before that battle. But after the battle, we see how inhumane it would have been to make an excuse for those that rebelled against the commandment of the Lord. And even at this time, they understood this basic fundamental principle that God will not bless sin. And if we allow sin in our camp, and if we allow sin in our life, then God will have to judge that, and God will have to deal with that. And here's what he's saying. You better learn how to deal with sin, because if you don't, it will short-circuit your walk with me. We need to, in our life, be looking for the things that can be sources of failure. And any time in our life that we lay ourselves open to temptation and to sin, that is a source of failure in our life. That is a potential beginning point of catastrophe in our life. They had to, to have a diligence. They had to watch themselves against those things because they will crop up often, consistently, daily in our life. Now, listen, I'm not trying to induce your anxiety. I'm just merely saying to you tonight, you go ahead and make up your mind that you're not going to be able to let your guard down. That don't mean you won't enjoy your Christianity. In fact, that's the only way you will enjoy your Christianity. But there ain't no taking a vacation from being a Christian. There ain't no taking a sabbatical from commitment to Christ. You're going to have to keep your guard up and commit yourself to diligent obedience. And then not only against the sources of failure, but then I like this last phrase. He says this, uh, this, I believe it's the, 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 well, no, maybe it's the sixth time it's found in this, in this chapter. But he says this, only be strong and of a good courage. Why did he tell him this? Because he knew that they were being commanded. I mean, you understand the people that would rebel against the command of the Lord, they weren't just some nobody out from the middle of nowhere that they didn't know. That would be their neighbors. That would be their family members that were putting the congregation of God at risk through their sin and disobedience. And he's saying when the day comes that you have to deal with that, it's not going to be easy. You're going to need some courage. You're going to need some grit. You're going to need some determination in your life. And he says, in that day, one of the things you'll have to watch against is the stumbling block of fear, of allowing yourself to come to the precipice of real meaningful commitment, but back away because the prospect of it is just too scary and too hard and too difficult. Here in a moment, we're going to have an altar call, and you're going to be able to put this into practice. Now, I don't necessarily believe it would be the will or mind of God for everybody in this room to go to the altar, although I guess we could all use it. And I'm not trying to pad for an altar call. But I'm just saying this, one of the problems is we lose our nerve. Right, uh, you know, about, I don't know, an hour and a half ago in my preaching, that would have been the time (laughs) when you were sitting there and your heart was running a 100 miles a minute and the Holy Ghost had convinced you of some area of your life that needed to be submitted to Christ and you were ready. But then the preacher preached too long. We didn't have an altar call then. And now we're getting ready to have an altar call. And a lot of times by the time that happens, You've lost your nerve. You ever heard the phrase, striking while the iron's hot? Because it only gets colder. It only gets harder. I said this morning as we closed our message, uh, why don't you move towards the Lord, make a move towards Christ? It ain't going to be no easier than it is right now. Because you know that's true. God saved me as a little boy alone in my bedroom as a 10-year-old child uh, in my parents' house. But that's unusual. Most people get saved in the house of God. Most people do serious business with God in the house of God. You say, preacher, can I go home and sit in my recliner and and talk to the Lord then? Yeah, if you can keep gun smoke off, you can. Yeah, if you can keep the gardening shows off, you can. You can, but you probably won't. 
I'm sorry, I thought you came to church tonight. You could, but you probably won't. Probably the time you'll do it will be here in the next few moments. And one of the great dangers is then in that moment of action and activity, you'll lose your nerve. And fear will become a stumbling block to you. And men's opinions will loom large as castles around you. And all of a sudden, the things that you were firmly convinced of 18 minutes ago have now become up for debate again. I'm just telling you, if you let that happen, chances are you'll falter. Chances are you'll, you'll turn back. If you're going to get serious, hey, here's what it's going to take. It's going to take instant obedience. It's going to take consistent uh, allegiance, and it's going to take constant diligence on your part. But I am firmly convinced that if you'll resolve yourself to these things, hey, you can enjoy your possession. You can enjoy what God's provided for you. I wonder if you'd be willing to do that tonight. Let's bow together. Musicians going to come and play. And I want to give you an opportunity, if God spoke to you about a matter, to meet the Lord in the altar. Listen, I only want you to move if God dealt with you. I want you to do it on my part by any stretch. But if God spoke to you about something, would you meet him in the altar? You say, well, preacher, it's it's been 20 minutes ago. Yeah, but if it was important then, it's important now. Uh, preacher, I, you know, God dealt with me about this this morning and I didn't deal with it. Well, if it was important then, it's still important now. Praise him for his long suffering, for his mercy that he's given you another opportunity. So why don't you slip out of your seat and meet him down in this altar? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus, we ask it in his name.